Welcome back to Get to the Good Part. My name is Ryan. My name is Chris. And I'm Aaron. And this week we have something a little bit special for you. Uh, as some of you may know, if you follow us on Twitter, uh, just the other day, um, I think two days ago from the night we're recording this, um, it was our one year anniversary as a podcast. Hurrah! Woo! <laughs> Quite an achievement. And here we are, I think right now we're going to be recording uh, chapter 18 next week, so we haven't quite made it into the, uh, the, the, the 20s yet, but we're well on our way. Um, this this episode's going to be a little bit different, like I said. What we're going to be doing is we're going to be recapping level one. Uh, that's chapters one through 16 in the book. Um He's got it split up into three different levels, and uh, I figure we'll we'll go back and do a retrospective on each level uh, as they pass us. Um, the level one is, you know, the setup to the book. I think when we were talking before we hit record tonight, Chris was kind of saying that level one is is a new hope. It's it's Star Wars: A New Hope to to a certain degree. Well, it's got a lot. Of, it's got well, it's got a lot of cross on it, right? I mean, it, you're starting with. A kid that has lost his parents. So, again, we go back to that trope of, of you know, not knowing his own background and his own history really very well. And then kind of discovering more about himself. And and that story flushing out him, finding out who his, who his arch nemesis is, and coming to a place at the end where everything actually is really peachy keen. Like, where where do you go from here? You know, Episode four pretty succinctly wraps it up with giant Death Star explosion and reward. And here at the end of this is is his reward as he gets the kiss as he finishes off the chapter 17. So I don't think it's beat for beat, but I think it's the origin story in a three-part book. And the, and the first part is just self-discovery and discovering his place in the world. Battle is won, war far from over. Yes, yes. Okay. Yeah, no, I mean, I, we've talked before about the origin story angle, and, uh, you know, I mean, I, I, there, there are certain correlations. I remember talking, I can't remember what, what episode it was now. I want to say it was, like, episode three. Um, but there was this moment where Wade is walking, or he's climbing down the stacks, and he looks over at the horizon and is like watching the sun rise over the stacks. So it's, it's when he's about to log into school for the first time. And when I first read that part of the book, I was like, oh my God, that's like that moment where Luke is... Uh, Looking longingly at the two suns <laughs> on the horizon. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, like that, that moment where the adventure is about to begin. Like there was this, there was just this through line there in the story and it, just that image. I was like, oh my God, that's like blatant. I, at least I thought so. I, th- I remember telling John about it. And he was just kind of like, yeah, I just thought he was climbing down some trailers. Like, <laughs> <laughs> he, he, he did not. He did not agree. But <laughs> it's, it's some almost people like, don't get deep. Well, it's, it's almost like the horizon in, in a lot of storylines always represents an adventure in the distance. There's something far off that you're looking towards that you're going to have to move towards. And I mean, it's not literal because it's just the fucking sun on the horizon, but it's always this, when you look off into the distance, what you're really looking at is there is a long path ahead of me. And that sort of represents either the setting sun, which is going into darkness or rising sun, which is going into light. 
And I've always found that to be, whether or not it's on purpose, kind of an interesting bit of symbolism. Sure. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's, I mean, it's a pretty common trope, I think, in science fiction, especially, you know, to, to frame it up as you've got this journey ahead. And, you know, I mean, really, Ready Player One plays out like a, like a trilogy in and of itself. I think that's why he splits it up into the three chapters. But, I mean, you got the three keys. You know, it, 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 it's sort of set up like a trilogy in and of itself, which is why it's kind of interesting to me that he's, you know, he's said that there's going to be a sequel to this book. And that's something we've talked about on the podcast before, but I just I wonder how that works. How do you how do you play off of a story that is, you know, set up to to end at a point? You know what I mean? I guess not. <laughs> I was waiting for Aaron to jump in. I've already said a shitload of stuff so far. Spotlight. I, I, I was trying to figure how to talk through that point without getting too much into <laughs> the way the book ends. Yeah, uh, we can I, steer away from it. I mean, it, it's just a thought. I, I mean, I, I would have said that he said he made it up to be level one, two, and three, so that when they did make it into a movie, it'd be a three-part movie. Yeah, would that would have been awesome? <clears throat> I, I kind of, I kind of wonder if it was pitched that way. But the more that I look at the trailers, the more the trailers give away more beyond part one. Yeah, and it feels very much like they've taken the book really chopped down to all the action sequences with uh, some made-up filler, and boom, it's just going to be the whole book is one movie. Unless they make this into a, you know, a three-parter that they're just doing in one giant shoot, and that's not unheard of. But I, the, the thing is, though, I mean, whoever gets it, like we said, we're going to try to stay away from spoilers, but somebody clearly gets the crystal key at the end of the trailer. Yeah, but again, it might also be that that is a foreshadowing of a part of the third movie. Thus, they're giving you some shit in the first trailer that kind of encompasses everything a little bit, but you'll only get so far in this series of three-parters. Yeah. So, you know, the trailer might actually cover parts of future movies that we don't see. And again, not totally unheard of, although I doubt that's the case. Yeah, I I would doubt it. I I think it's going to get the Ender's Game treatment. And what I mean by that is in the the book takes place over a significant period of time, but the movie takes place in what feels like days. Oh, yeah. That felt fucking rushed. Didn't it? God bless. Yes. I mean, they could have spent a whole first movie on him, you know, basically getting worked up in space and discovering more about tactics. And, you know, like they really could have felt that that plot a little bit. Uh, You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna flash back to uh, our first conversation on this podcast and have a Willow moment here, but I have never read Ender's Game. It's a good book. Yeah, it's okay. It's a good book. As a teenager, that was one of those books that that for me was important because it, if anything, taught how to think outside of the box, sort of, and that that and that was Ender's strength was that he approached his training based on how other people treated him, which was shitty. And also based on limitations, which was that he wasn't allowed to fight or he would figure out how to break those rules or he would go and he would play in different ways between battles and figure out ways to, to approach the battle from different angles that other people weren't doing. I, just, I don't know. It was just it just for me, it was that one book that that solidified that kind of cheesy idea of thinking out of the box. Sure. 
So back to Ready Player One, the book we cover on this podcast. I should read it. I I, I should read Ender's Game because I've never heard any anybody say really anything bad about it. I mean, I've heard I've heard bad things about it, but it usually comes from you know the type of people who rip Ready Player One. You know, the kind that like think books shouldn't be fun; they should just be criticized over <laughs> tea and pretentiousness. Sorry if you're one of those people out there. Uh, if I offended you. Uh, I don't give a shit. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, I've taken my barbs since we started this podcast. If they get their, if they get butthurt a little bit, I'm good with that. (laughs) Ender's game is, is one of those. Actually, Ender's game is a lot less fun than this book because it's, it's basically kids being treated as adults and put into adult situations. There is no romance story, not in, not in Ender's game. The book, there might be in follow-ups that were, there were no, romance stories it was purely a kid dealing with grown-up situations and having to make grown-up adult decisions but still being a fucking kid so in that sense kind of weird could you imagine Mm -hmm. how ruined that book would have been if they added a romance angle to that there could have been like like one of the one of the peeps he befriends quite deeply is female and ends up you know he ends up commanding her and a number of other people being and so on and that could have happened, but he just didn't take it that way. He didn't move in that direction. We are doing a retrospective on Ready Player One, <laughs> the book by Ernest fucking Klein. You, you fucking we went move back off to... of it. No, if you want to do, it is hey. relevant, be, you know, because you have the whole Parsville Artemis thing that's going on, and is that, yeah, you know, how does it affect the story and where? I just keep thinking about the stories that I enjoyed that were, that I thought were ruined by the romance angle, like the like the Matrix. Right. I, I, was, I was thinking the exact same thing. Worst Wait, what, part. What about the Matrix? How um, oh. the, uh, with the Trinity Neo? Oh, oh my god, that was so forced and so oh, wasn't awful, it? and it was so unfeeling. Like I just could not feel. I mean, there was more love in John Wick for the puppy than there was <laughs> for Trinity as him playing Neo. It was just, the chemistry just was so flat. You know, you know, you know one movie that really, like, romance ruined it for me? Romancing, romancing the Stones? When Harry oh, Met Sally? In the title. No. <laughs> no. Ghostbusters? Is Sleepless in Seattle. Oh, I was so close. No, it was uh, Interstellar. <laughs> I agree with that critique of Interstellar. Uh, mm. Interstellar that, that love is like the thing that connects people across galaxies. It's just yeah, like, I could do without that. Oh my god, yeah, I, think I could do without that. <laughs> What's the solution to this really awesome sci-fi thing? Well, we're gonna go into that black hole over there uh, because I can't think of anything else better to do in the moment. And, uh, oh, look, it just so happens to be like this really cool kick-ass matrix through time that I can reach out with love. Uh, it lost me. I was like, okay, look, it's, it's got the, it's got the, the reach whole out con- through love via a bookcase at a farmhouse in like Iowa or wherever the fuck it is. <laughs> some really dusty place. There, there's some ways that a per- that movie could have ended in so many fucked up ways. Like, fine, he ends up in the black hole. He ends up in the bookshelf. He moves some shit. And then his daughter just walks past it. He's like, fuck, that didn't work. How the hell do I get out of here? Ah, oh, shit. <laughs> stuck in this stuck in fucking, a fucking book, book show. Yeah. 
It would be like the end of a Twilight Zone episode. And, you know, there was time now. And that would be that would be like the the end of the movie. It would be like he's stuck in the bookshelf in time. Whoops. It's kind of like the end of Quantum Leap. I I didn't see the end of Quantum Leap. I think there was a shark that was left in Quantum Leap that that kind of made me drop. The entire out. series was a fucking leapt shark. <laughs> it's about a guy. <laughs> Who who enters into well? I mean, they recap it at the beginning of literally every episode of that show. But what what do you think was the shark that got jumped? I think I might know what you're gonna say, dude. I don't know. I just I saw so many episodes, and at some point, I was just like, I'm done with this. And God, I don't know if I want to bring this up on the podcast because I don't want to come off as insensitive. We can edit it out. Damn it! No. <laughs> Go, but just go with couple, it. I, I won't make. There were a couple bad. of un- uncomfortable episodes of Quantum Leap. Anyways, now we sound like we is, are is literally one... in our own basement talking about the things we love. Is it? Is it? Is it when he jumps into the mentally handicapped kid and they have a romantic yes. relationship? Oh, I yes. knew it. That was yes. uncomfortable. I was like, oh, this feels kind of off. Like this would be illegal. <laughs> well, I remember I was binging it. I was. I, like this is back in college and I was binging quantum leap because it was a little before my time. And I got to the end. Cause you know, they would always preview mm. at the end of the episode, what he was going to be jumping into the next week. Right. And it was pretty late at night. And then that scene came up where he looks in the mirror and see who he's going to be. And I was like, Holy shit. <laughs> How are they going to play that story? Unbelievable. I think and, back when that aired, people were a little less sensitive than they are today. Probably, mm. yeah. It's like alongside reruns of Dukes of Hazard, which were at the time tame and harmless. Where they rolled around with a Confederate flag on the roof of their car for the entire fucking series, which you couldn't do today. Yeah, like no, no one, no one blinked twice about that. Like that yeah. was just kind of like, uh, oh, isn't that just, isn't that just Southern and funny? <laughs> and let me just, let me just say, like, I don't yearn for those years again. Totally. I mean, some of that stuff, it's pretty good to wipe it off the pages of history. <sighs> At any rate, let's, <laughs> let's, let's move out of the political and back into the Ready Player One because, after all, that's what this fucking podcast is supposed to be about. <laughs> Um, All right. I wanted to kind of go back and I wanted to kind of go back and talk about some of the the highlights of level one for you guys. You know, I mean, we kind of talked about them a little bit before we started recording tonight, but um, we haven't really had this this kind of retrospective conversation before. So we'll just fuck it. We'll do it live. Fuck it. Do it live. Um, (laughs) So like. Let, let's think back. I mean, like so far to to each of you, what has been the best chapter of the first sixteen? Ooh, that's tough. Uh, I don't know if I can pin it to one chapter, but I think my favorite part of level one is just the world building and learning about the oasis and what you can do in there and how the ed, the public education system works. And because every time I listen to this book, I hear all this stuff and I'm like, God damn it. Where is that already? Like, that just sounds awesome. And it just makes me want it. Like I want yeah. that shit now. And every time I read it without, you know, without exception, I'm just going there and I'm like, God, that'd be cool. 
be really cool. It would be. It will be. It's pretty close. It seems like it. It feels like it. It feels like there's a there's very strong undercurrent between VR, between virtual reality and and the sort of altered reality that we're moving towards digitally. And there is a bit of a. It feels like a bit of a race between VR and AR in regards to what's going to be the, the dominant entertainment technology. Uh, it feels very much like the VHS versus Betamax war. And it's not exactly like that because they are two distinctly different experiences, but technologies are ramping up, I think because there's this anticipation of the movie coming out and that once it's demonstrated what could be done, it will plant the seed for a demand that businesses will get funded on. It is kind of serendipitous, isn't it, for for Ernest Klein that like there there was this like awakening of VR because like I, I mean Oculus when when did Oculus really come onto the scene, Chris? Uh, you know it's been years, but it's been in production for it feels like ten years or more. Like it, you know Oculus right. has really been in development, and then it's it's been on the market. I, I just shooting from the hip here. It feels like maybe five years. But Oculus was the driver of the modern VR conversation, right? It was, at the very least, the most heavily publicized in my memory. Right. And so so Oculus was was well into development by the time this book came out, right? I would be willing to guess, yeah. Yeah. I mean, even even from, you know, and I don't know if we've ever covered it or if it's just a bit of trivia that I'm forgetting, but I don't recall when he said he started writing this book. But I would wager that Oculus was on its way before this book was written. Or before he started writing it. I don't know for sure. But, I mean, it's just, it's like I said, it's it's more serendipitous than anything. That VR would have this huge resurgence around the time, you know, within the time frame of the book being released, you know, really kind of between, you know, 2010, 2018, like now, Mm -hmm. uh, just interest in VR growing. And then you've got this vehicle. To give people and say this is if you if you're struggling to imagine the possibilities through VR, this book is a really good example of what it could look like. Well, and here's an interesting thing: is that Oculus Rift started as a Kickstarter campaign in 2012. Ready Player One came out in 2011, so it could very well be that the book came before the technology. That the book may have inspired the technology early on. Or that maybe seeds were planted in parallel that was beginning to bring it both in fiction and reality at the same time. But Oculus Rift hit their Kickstarter campaign in 2012. They released their product in 2016. Uh, It might have actually been earlier than that. So it might might have been like 2014. I see March 2014 as a a date here. Uh, But but still, we're talking many years later. I think VR was appearing in fiction way before that like when did lawnmower man come out sure oh yeah that's that's 80s 90 or was that late 80s or early 90s for some reason my gut was saying 92 uh 92 wow fuck that's great yeah it is 92 well done (laughs) yeah and and you're right because he did have that headset and he did have that that suspension device that kind of allowed him to it allowed him to function with this this area of reality around him where what he did interface with the digital world and it was a very large sort of construct if I remember rightly. But but the the porting of, of reality, of business and culture 
it into the virtual space was not explored really in in Lawnmower Man, as I recall. No, right. but you know where, if memory serves, it was sort of Tron. The, <laughs> is that where you're going no no the movie yeah. disclosure disclosure I, I don't think i've seen that uh michael douglas and demi moore never seen it no mm-hmm. i've not uh-uh. well so they they work for some company or whatever like that and uh they have like this it guy who kind of like set up their whole like business servers like this virtual reality thing and there's a scene where Michael Douglas has to put on a headset and get on this kind of um, this pad that sim- simulates, you know, the ground surface, and he's he's trying to navigate the the company servers, and that was in '94. It was. It was in '94. Uh, and uh, the the other, I mean, I guess the closest that I could think in a movie would be Total Recall. But I think that that even is slightly different because it's not really like a virtual world. It's no. more of like a dream state that he's put in. Like, I think they're feeding his brain, just 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 feeding his brain that information. Yeah, that's kind of like D&D on steroids, not really yeah. a virtual reality. I'm trying to think what other movies had a virtual reality component to it. And Strange Days, a 1995 movie. It had, um, oh bless, it had a number of peeps in it. It had Angela Bassett, Julia Lewis, Tom Sizemore was in it. But the gist was that you were purchasing memories. And there was a headset on, but you also had other such interactions with your brain. And this wasn't a situation, per se, of a virtual reality so much as you were virtually experiencing somebody else's experiences. So that's sort of like Total Recall. Yeah, I'd say. Okay. So, so yeah, that's, that's that's getting outside of the virtual realm. But, but no, I mean... You know, knowing that Oculus, you know, they started their Kickstarter a little bit after the book was launched. Um, I mean, that makes it interesting. Now, I, I think that, you know, Ready Player One and the success that it had kind of proved that virtual reality was was a vehicle of interest, I think, for people. Right. You know what I mean? Because, like, you you love this book for the escapism, I think. <laughs> we can probably all agree on that, right? Oh yeah, uh, definitely. It's, it, it, uh, it like video games. It is the the deepest level of escape. It is it is the ability to fully immerse yourself into something that is more expansive and and more visceral than potentially the real world. And I think we do that a lot with video games. And you see a lot of news articles now about kids being addicted to their phones. But this this idea that you can fully divide yourself between the real world any virtual world and that both sides have a great degree of sort of what matters. Uh, just, I think it goes in that direction. Yeah. You know, I think that that too uh, kind of leads me to, to the next thing that we kind of brought up, I think within the first half of the podcast, uh, but it, but it was a recurring theme throughout. Uh, and I feel like this is a really good space to kind of now that we've got 16 chapters to cover as opposed to just one um, to look back. And I, I think it's a good time to have the conversation, too, because the perspective, I think, without giving any spoilers, I think at level two, you get a perspective shift on this. Now, the argument could be made and it, like clearly it's one of the major themes of the book is, you know, the society, the dystopian society. Uh, that Earth is in 2045. Um, 
is it the result of something existing like the Oasis or is, is, is the Oasis necessary because society is the way it is? That's something we, we talked about, you know, here and there in brief stints, but it to me is, is one of the major themes of the book. And as it stands and try to think within the context of the first 16 chapters, I mean, what do you guys think? I mean, do you, do you think, the oasis caused society to be where it is, or do you think that do you think that the society being what it is just created the need for the oasis? I I think the book kind of hints at the the world was kind of going to shit on its own because uh, he was he talks about you know how the ongoing energy crisis basically necessitated this virtual meeting of people within the oasis. And I would think that if the oasis was there ahead of time, then and seeing how good it actually is at creating these, these virtual meeting spaces. So you, and you don't have to go on vacation anymore. You can just kind of go onto these uh, excursions in the oasis then that would kind of suggest that that energy crisis may not nece- it may not be necessary it may not be it may not actually happen because people would already not be traveling and taking planes and driving around as much and all these things that you know he writes in the book as being contributing factors towards the shithole that they're in i don't know i i uh I think that uh, I think that it's like it's like two heavy bodies that find orbit around each other. And I'll give an example because we've already seen this before with cell phones or smartphones. Before Apple introduced their smartphone, there were PDAs. They sucked. There were phones that could access the internet. They sucked. There were phones that let you listen to music. They sucked. But somehow the bringing together of technology into an interface that allowed for a greater degree of development and a greater degree of, of flexibility. The market just latched onto it and continues to do so today. And it just, it heralded in the, the age of the internet and applications at our fingertips rather than at a desktop, you know, or, you know, sitting on, on top of a desk, rather than you being chained to the internet at a desk, it is now with you wherever you go. You can be as smart as the smartest people on earth, no matter where you are, because you have it in your pocket. And that's just nothing we had before that in a very good form. And that crosses over to this idea of you have a combination of a heavy situation of a lot of people impoverished and able to access cheap technology. And then you have, on this other hand, this technology that allows you to completely immerse yourself in a whole other world. And when you take these two things and combine them together, it's chocolate and fucking peanut butter. It just, it, you, these are just two things that converge and feed on each other. And then from that, it's, it's not which one is more influential. It's that both happen and, and feed on each other to get bigger. I think if there were few, if people were not poor, there wouldn't be as much of a need to escape. Then that would be the oasis would be second rate to actually flying to Chile or flying to Asia, but that everyone's poor and everything's expensive makes the Oasis the first-rate experience that anyone can access. Without everybody being poor and world, the world going to hell in a handbasket, the Oasis wouldn't be as powerful as it is described in the book. 
<laughs> because why fly to Chicago when you can hang out with Ferris Bueller there? Exactly. <laughs> it's a fair point because, um, I mean, even someone dirt poor like Parzival is able to get online and hang out with people he wouldn't normally get to hang out with. And go to places he'd never be able to go to. Like he'd go to a fucking moon or sit on uh, Neptune if he wants to. And there's something to be said too with, you know, I I think the first three chapters of the book, especially uh, focus on the fact that, you know, the thing that Wade, I think really enjoys about the Oasis at the very beginning of the book is that you can be whoever the hell you want. He likes the fact that he's not himself in the Oasis. And that's something that I think gets, I don't know if it gets left behind as the book goes on, but it's certainly, I I think he takes a different angle on it because, you know, especially now as we're heading into chapter 18 on the podcast, but the first 16 chapters, I mean, you're kind of seeing him come out of his shell a little bit, you know, I mean, he's, he's found this, this group of friends um, and I think too, and this is probably the most important thing, he has a level of confidence now. Um, you know, that confidence is gained within the Oasis and almost is exclusive to the Oasis, you know, the the, the win that he gets there. Um, and that's something I don't really want to go too deep into because again, I'm getting beyond myself in chapters here, uh, beyond our our level one limitation here. But I think it's something that in level one, it's it's about Wade disconnecting from reality almost to get away from himself. Sure, I could get that because you could ask the question, what is Wade without the Oasis? I mean, if you dissect the Oasis from who Wade is, who is he in the book? Like, how is he described? I mean, he's he's an he's an overweight kid from Oklahoma City with. No parents and no caring family. And nobody that knows he exists once he's in the Oasis. I mean... Right. He has literally no friends. Literally. Except for Mrs. Gilmore. All of his friends exist in the Oasis. He's nothing without the Oasis. It's really what it comes down to. He is... uh, He's at best maybe a statistic, but no one anyone would miss in in the real world. And Which is great. proves that point. Yeah, <laughs> right. right. <laughs> with, with great effect. <laughs> but, you know, like, here's the thing to think about. And, you know, I'm, I tie this back to, you know, my own experience with, like, online friendships. I mean, hell, Aaron, we only know you through this podcast. That's true. You know what I mean? We, I've never met Aaron <laughs> in real life. You know, I mean, we, we know each other through this podcast. So we, what you're saying uh, is we need to make a, we need to make a road trip. Well, road, no. trip. <laughs> road, road trip. Yes, <laughs> we, we should. Where, where do you live again? DC, right? Just outside of DC, dude. It's not far. It's like seven hours. It's true. We should it's road trip. Far. We should do. A I, weekend. I would be perfect. I would be perfectly fine with getting out of Knoxville for a couple hours. <laughs> no problem leaving this place. But anyways, <laughs> but but no, I, like I, you know, I have a group of friends that I've referenced before that I played Destiny with. You know. And these guys I consider close friends, you know, I mean, we, we, you know, lose contact sometimes, but, you know, most of the time we'll, you know, every few months or so we'll do a check-in kind of thing. And then every now and again, we'll, 
we'll go on a tear and we'll play games for a few nights in a row. But, you know, I mean, these are people that I feel pretty, you know, I'm pretty close with because we've spent a lot of time sitting down and talking together. And what do you do in, you know, in any social situation, whether it's, you know, through, uh, through some sort of interface or in person, it's still socializing. So if Wade had died in the stacks explosion, you know, do you think the grief would be any different for, uh, for H? No. I don't think it would be. No, they're they're definitely uh, tight in their friendship. And uh, I would actually be very interested in a prequel that focuses on their friendship and how they met. And, yeah, I think that would be a lot of fun. I think there's a a lot to be said with the fact that when you really get down to whether or not you exist as a person and perceive yourself, the only way that you really interface with your world is through the information that your body receives in. It's through the, the tingly sensations through your hands. It's through the electrical impulses of your eyes. All of these senses could be removed from you one at a time, and you'd be left sitting in the dark, which is your little hotel room with a window, if you will, unplugged from the oasis that is the real world for us so that you experience friendship with something that has a sort of meta experience of sensory input, that it is through headphones versus necessarily your ears, that it's through a screen rather than with your eyes, that it's just one layer removed, I don't think makes it any less of a friendship. And I, just like you, Ryan, I have at least a dozen friends that I play with online that I have very detailed and in-depth friendships, probably stronger than a majority of the people I know in person that I would even consider to be close. So you're right to that point. I, I don't think that would be any less hurtful if if he died and he was missed by H and the Oasis, probably with the same kind of remorse, if not deeper. And I think it speaks to that point too, like that, you know, when they when he says, you know, my life is in the Oasis, that's the only life I have. That's really the only life anyone has anymore is within that, you know, within the oasis that's it i mean when you when he talks about like it's it's very depressing when he goes outside of the oasis sure it's a fucking bummer because you you have to face reality you know it's this colorful i mean it's like it's it's like you know the fucking tornado and then you land in oz and everything's colored like that's 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 the way I feel about inside and outside of the oasis. You know? And then she goes back, and the world's a sepia again. She's like, "This sucks. <laughs> Fuck this place." <laughs> <laughs> you people are assholes. I really like to be over the rainbow again. That'd be nice. Which is why when you go into Return to Oz, you know, even though the outside world is in color, uh, still, but in Return to Oz, I mean, she is pining for it. She's obsessed with the idea of Oz. Whether or not it's real, you know, it's 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 just that rich sort of, you know, better version of reality almost in some ways. There she's a hero. There she has these friends that she can connect with. And, you know, they go on an adventure together. And whether or not it was real or, or you know, head trauma, <laughs> I think it's pretty pretty well confirmed that it's head trauma. But still, she pines for that. And I think that's 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 the sort of divorce you know from reality um you know that people are looking for when they they hop into the oasis and that's sort of the effect that if you were to pull the plug 
on the oasis that's i think that's you know that return to like a sepia life i can't imagine what that would do to their society it's just insane we'll talk about that more toward the end of the book but dorothy can still go to columbus ohio because it glitters like oz she can get her fixed that way (laughs) the shine the shine the shining beacon on the hill of columbus ohio (laughs) there's no hill there's no hill it's it's flat this is why tornadoes fuck that place up (laughs) it is it is so fucking flat (laughs) i i think i think we kind of dance around the real question of why why do we call the oasis not real why are we why are we why are we even making a designation between you know real versus not real is it because especially since reality is a simulation chris We all know that. As far as your senses are concerned, it is. I know. <laughs> I'm just I'm, I'm I'm playing. But seriously though, I mean, I've I've gotten into the simulation theory thing, you know, fairly I think in the past years we've been researching this book, like simulation theory is something that I've kind of delved into. But just to kind of you know, I mean, like when you're talking about who's who's to say that this isn't reality? You know what I mean? I think that that's. I think that the whole simulation theory thing has like a comp, like a piece of the conversation here. Wouldn't you agree? Oh yeah, absolutely. I, I think that reality is is what you choose to to affect your life. And if there's some continuity, for example, your dreams aren't reality because there's no continuity, or there rarely is. When you wake up and you go back to sleep, you're not picking up from where you were. Otherwise, you would consider it to be two two forms of reality that have continuity. Whereas when you log into the Oasis, you are fully entrenched physically, visually, auditorially in a reality. It is a reality. It affects you. It affects other people. It affects the economy. It affects the kind of life that you have and live. I think it's very much a reality. I think it's a very real. It's just that you live in two existing realities at that point. God, could you imagine an open source reality? It would be equal parts great and just completely fucked up. Source code on that would suck. So, yeah. so, so you wouldn't say that the what we call reality, the real world, is you know paper money and the oasis is Bitcoin. It could be sure. I absolutely could call it that. Yeah, but I mean, keep in mind, Bitcoin is real. It has a very real effect. It is symbolic, real, symbolically as real as anything else at this point until it isn't you know if if you break everything down to symbols then it's equally real across the board all you're discussing is whether or not that symbol is tangible and when we're talking about the oasis the symbolism within the oasis is tangible as well and that's the sound of chris cantley blowing our collective minds (laughs) as we listen to this podcast (laughs) no but see i'm playing but but seriously it's this, you know it's an this. interest it's it's an interesting topic to me you know i mean cuz if if something could be so real as to you know as as to com- not only compete with but continually uh just beat out reality you know what i mean a place that's so immersive you can get in there and you can trick yourself into believing that you you inhabit this world and to a degree you do I mean, it's it's interesting to flip that on its head and think about reality, you know, in 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 
in just how, you know, like, like you were saying, how real is the desk that's in front of you or, you know, the computer that's in front of you or it's, I sound, I sound like I am 15 years old and have, have just smoked weed for the first time. (laughs) That's how I feel talking about this stuff. Like, what about God, man? But like, seriously, it's, it's, it's so hard for me to even articulate because it's just such, it's such an awesome and intimidating concept. I I think it's neat. I think that, that maybe we should all as an experiment when we go to, to up to DC to visit, that maybe we should find somebody who has a, a sensory deprivation chamber and we go and experience truly a different reality by not altering our perception of reality through an input of some sort, but by reducing the inputs that we naturally have. See, Chris, this is why we don't hang out more often. (laughs) (laughs) Come on, Ryan. Let's go get in a tank together and float in salt water. Here's what we should do. Let's invite ourselves to our our podcast co-host's house and then tell him and his wife that, hey, we're going to go hang out and... uh, we're gonna start Aaron for a while and go go hang out in some sensory deprivation chambers. We're gonna go change reality, man. <laughs> People around here have other ways of doing that because pot is legal here now. Or <laughs> no joke, uh, I was walking to work the other day and somebody showed me their open palm with a chunk full of weed in it. Really? Did they offer a price? Uh, like I'm is that more than an ounce, sh- buddy? Can you even carry that? I think he was a little bit spooked because a cop car just went racing by. Uh, and I think he was just kind of like relieved that they weren't going after him. And it's like, oh, he's like, oh, look what I got. And I'm just like, <laughs> it's okay. I'm all right. I don't need that. Ooh, that was close because I'm holding. Exactly. <laughs> it was a weird day. I've never, I've heard about sensory deprivation, but I don't really know what it does for you. It, it it's it's you get into a tank that's completely dark you float in in heavily saturated salt water uh so you're you're sort of neutral buoyancy and uh, you don't have to worry about floating is the gist here the temperature is at your body temperature so you don't even really feel the water the gist is to reduce as much sensory input as possible to see what comes through after because when your mind is robbed of sensory input completely while you're conscious your brain freaks the fuck out and has to compensate that's how dreams happen your brain is compensating for a lack of sensory input while you're resting but when you're not sleeping what you experience is a whole other sort of mental reality from the inside that sounds fucked up it does sound fucked up and very unenjoyable i for it's for some people it's very eye-opening so, did they change the water out in these tanks between? <laughs> it's, it's it's salt water, I guess. I don't know. I I didn't. Ask. Where do you go to do that? Do they do they do this at like spas or do you yeah. just like they do? Some people have. Uh, yeah, like there, there are some spas I I believe that have that. I I think there are possibly private places that you can go. Like you know. Okay, Chris, I'm not going to any of those. <laughs> That sounds you know if up. some dude decides to to create the chamber open a like a house like a you uh, know where you stay the weekend a, like a bed and breakfast right well this is like the bed and breakfast of getting high I suppose or alternating your altering your reality Chris that, a, no it's not 
<laughs> if somebody opened their house to me and said, I'm going to put you, I'm going to lock you in a lock you. I'm going to yeah. lock you in a fucking tank. Yeah. And I'm going to turn off all the lights and you're just going to float there in salt water. Yeah. And you're going to do this in my home. Yeah. With no and, regulations or anything. No, no, I'm, I'm not beholden to any sort of like government oversight or anything like that or any sort of corporate structure. I'd be terrified. There might be. There might be. I don't know. I guess it depends on the person. It depends on how under the tank the money is exchanged. I don't know. Yeah, I'm but sure it's big... a cash only business. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of waivers to sign before you go in there. <laughs> it's not like it's deep. I don't give a damn if it's a kiddie pool. It's still fucking creepy. Just the concept of doing that in someone's home. It's like a spa. So when you're doing this, can you like check out the upside down? <laughs> that's right. They do this in Stranger Things, don't they? That's yeah. how like actually 11... that is a that's a perfect example of a of that sort of thing. Yeah. So it's funny you should mention that because she is in sort of a a a full tank detri- deprivation chamber. She does it in a pool at the end, though, right? Like a kiddie pool? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's it's filled with salt. Remember, they have to go and get, like, shitloads of bags of salt yeah. so that she has that sort of neutral buoyancy going on? Yeah. Right? Yeah, right. no, I'm not, I'm not doing that, Chris. Not even in a kiddie pool? <laughs> no. No, okay. not even in a kiddie pool? I, even if it was a, a completely house? safe environment? No, I'm not doing it. Do it in your garage. No. I, I'll admit this, okay? I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to come out and say this before we uh, we move on to the next topic, but... As a grown man, as a grown fucking 34-year-old with kids man, I am still terrified of the dark. Can't fair enough. Fair that's enough. Fair, that's fair. So All right. The, the closest I've come to anything like this, I've, I've floated in the Dead Sea before. Oh, that's cool. Oh, man. That, that is cool. I highly recommend. But I venture to say that might be the closest you'll get to me being in one of these uh, uh, sensory deprivation tanks. So you don't, don't want to go with Chris when he comes to D.C. to some back alley to get locked up in a fucking pool? Definitely not a back alley <laughs> deprivation tank. <laughs> I don't know, or, a, or a front alley one, for that matter. <laughs> I can't imagine there is a front alley deprivation tank. Chris, if you can find one, will you please share it with us and the rest of the community who listens to the show to just prove that this is a fucking thing that exists? Wait, it is. So, I've seen videos. Like, are we keeping this up- in? You're not going to cut this out? <laughs> Dude, like the D.C. area, there's a place called Sulex Float Spa, and there's another one that's called Hope Floats Beside See, look, Beth- no, this Bethesda. is a weird Bethesda. thing. Bethesda. Sorry, you, yes. You're already, you're already planning your vacation. I kind of DC. am. Aaron well, still hasn't invited us out, Chris. <laughs> well, we can always stay somewhere else. Space it out a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I get it. I'm just saying, like, like, it could be a thing. Like, I could go and I could do it, and then we can do... We can do a show immediately afterwards or during, and then you could have like the before and after Chris gets out of the hole. This isn't the Today Show, Chris. This is a <laughs> podcast about Ready Player One. All right, fine. But, you know, let, let's face it. The, 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 the full in contraption as far as your gloves and your headset and your earphones, that's sensory deprivation. The difference is whether or not it's on or off. I'll tell you what we should do. We should have a contest on the show when we get to the level two episodes. We should do a contest, and the winner gets to go with Chris to the float tanks. Yes. Or oh I was going to sit. Well, that sounds like a, that sounds like a prize fitting for the loser no, of the contest. But... No, first prize goes in the float tank with 
with Chris. Second prize gets to smoke pot with someone else. <laughs> Wait, well, why don't I, mean, I get both? It would have to be you because it's not legal here in Tennessee. I don't smoke pot. I've never have. <laughs> Neither have I. Same. Well, aren't we just the fun bunch? Yeah, yeah. hey, we're the cool kids at the table. We're the dudes like in the corner at the party. I'm not smoking pot, man. Who would have thought that three guys on a podcast about Ready Player One weren't the cool guys? <laughs> or smoking pot, for that matter. Yeah. <laughs> it's, like, it's like half the audience is going to be like, really? These guys aren't smoking pot right now? <laughs> no, they're probably thinking, man, you would probably like your show a lot better if you did. <laughs> <laughs> this is why I always have a drink on hand when we do the podcast. Energy drink. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's what we need is a hyped up Chris coming up with more harebrained schemes to uh, get us into back alleys floating around. Uh, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm, I'm taking it farther than so, it should go. <laughs> so we came here to talk about a book, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Anyways, so depriving, depriving your senses is an important part of what we're talking about here uh, because you're leaving the shit colored world. You know, this this 2045, this dystopian shithole. Uh, shithole is kind of a trigger word nowadays, but I think that it the world... happens to be in the U.S. I think it's fair. I think so, too. And, and it really is, but, like, <laughs> probably worldwide at this point. Because, I mean, the way it's framed at the beginning of the book is that this is, this is very legitimately could be the end of the world. Mm. Right? Right. I mean, it's the energy crisis and everything like that and the economy. I mean, they're talking about, like, I think they mentioned that, you know, there have been nuclear wars. Well, I mean, he basically says, like, you know, about news reports that um, about another city exploding in a mushroom cloud. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I would love to see? Um, A city explode in a mushroom cloud? No. I could watch Terminator 2 for that. True. And to make a Reddit joke, scientists say that this is the most accurate representation of a mushroom. Did you see that whole thing on Reddit? No, it was, it was stupid as shit, but it, it was funny. But no, like uh, Fallout, uh, the Fallout series is like like this alternate timeline that splits off after World War II, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the really interesting thing about it is like it's the lore is so deep. You can go back and you can read the history of the United States from World War II as it splits off. You can also see maps of how the United States look looks after the bombs hit. So that like the Mississippi River is like a dividing line for the United States. It's also one of the most toxic areas of the United States. Right, and it's just like it, it shows how new like that nuclear detonation or the several nuclear detonations affected the different areas of the United States based on. Every like down to their geography, like why it's so saturated where the Mississippi River is, and so it, it's really cool that they thought that far ahead, you know. And I would love to see like a map of the world in the Ready Player One universe, just to see like you know, like like are there certain countries that are just completely annihilated now? Because he talks about you know all over the world. Or, you know, yada, yada, yada. I mean, it could be that there is an entire section of the United States that's completely uninhabitable. And, and yeah, and that makes sense. Like, it's as if lawlessness, it, 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 it's as if hugging the cities is the only way to survive. Hence the stacks, people moving into the stacks and then leaving their cars. They will never leave the city again. 
there's nothing outside of the city to go to other than another city that's crowded. So cities become these sort of fortifications of poverty, whereas anything outside is lawlessness, and any in, anything inside is eh, semi-lawful. And they talk about that, too, when he's on his trip to Columbus. Yeah. You know, how, how they have, like, armed guards on the buses to, like, fend off bandits. It, it reminds me, in my mind, like a, a cross between the video game Borderlands and Fallout. Like, there's this sort of mashup of experience there and the kinds of people that can come out of that and the experiences within it. It reminds me of Union County, Tennessee, as it stands today. <laughs> Uh, uh, you're uh, talking about video games and your local geography. I, I'm just going to sit back and listen. Oh, video yeah, games that's are. right. You're not a, you're not a video gamer. <laughs> I'm not a video gamer. But that, I think that speaks to how great the book is because, like, I was just, like, totally, in, you know, got totally into the book. And, you know, I had a Nintendo growing up, but I might have played a version of Call of Duty a long, long time ago. But yeah. that's kind of it. Oh, and I played Rock Band. But that's my gaming experience. But yeah, I mean, but still, I mean, like, does that not pique your interest a little bit about like, you know, the deep lore of Fallout and then. No, like that sounds really cool. Like the, all the, um, the world building for the, you know, for that sounds really interesting. The fact that somebody had to think about it and probably get a lot of expert input, you know, to make it really plausible. And we've seen a lot of fan fiction come out, especially from our own community. Um, you know, just, just fleshing out the story and most of it has to do directly with the hunt, but I would love to see some fan fiction come out of ready player one that further builds out the world. And like, and we've, I think we talked about this before, Chris, but like, just, just something that, that, that further explains the society that this is all happening around in, in reality. You know, I would, I, I would be interested in that. I think most people would probably be bored by it. Well, when we talk about movies outside of of this particular chapter, or not chapter, but this particular section of the book, this this first sort of section or episode, if you will, that you could speak to a prequel that builds up to the point where the Oasis is is explosively born into society and the kind of setup of poverty and, and where that road comes to. Maybe you could do the story of Parzival's father. And, and coming to a position where he ends up dying, but has sort of this, this history that he passes on to his son unknowingly to him that sets him on the path in the direction that he goes. I think like you could create kind of a, a prequel to this setup that helps to sort of detail how the country gets formed from what it was into what it is in the period of the book. Yeah, and we had talked about this. I can't remember if we were online or off. But we had talked about the idea of Wade's dad not having been just somebody who was like trying to rob food, but he was like involved in some sort of like resistance rioting kind of thing. Right. You know, like he could have been, you know, part of some sort of faction that was working against, you know, whatever evil faction was, you know, was was dictating the United States at that point. It's believable. It's yeah. And it's all speculation because there's nothing to back it up in the book. It's just imaginations wandering. But anyways, before we go down another rabbit hole, um, I've got one last thing and then I'm going to open it up to you guys if there's anything you wanted to bring up. 
Um, my last thing, and I want to do this before we go into, you know, at, or at the end of level one, at the or at the end of level two and three as well. But at this point, we're talking chapters one through 16. I know it's kind of hard to divorce your mind from this because you guys, like me, have read the book more times than you care to admit. It's kind of blurry. But between chapters one and 16, who's your favorite character? You know, it's, a, it's an excellent question. And um, we don't have tons of characters to choose from. So that's helpful. Um, I mean... Is it too cliche to say that, you know, because he's the main character, that Parzival is probably the most logical place to end up? Because uh, he's who we know the most about. And, um, but I don't think I'm going to go there. Because I, I would say, even though we've not really heard much from him, I, I like Og. I love that exchange with the reporter. He's like, Quick, you better cut me off before I say something else. <laughs> I I just every uh every time I hear that part, I just laugh. I'm like I can picture it in my head. Uh I he just sounds like the most awesome guy. And so if I had to pick somebody other than the the most natural place to end up, which would be, you know, Wade Watts slash Parzival, I I kinda like the portrayal of Og thus far. I get that. What about you, Chris? I like where you're going with that. So I'm going to counter that with Anorak. And I think that what's overlooked in a lot of books and a lot of films is that the environment in which the film or the book takes place should become a character. Uh, Avatar. I don't mean Avatar as in, like, you know, elemental magic Avatar. I mean Avatar as in, like, the movie with the, the giant Smurfs and the huge trees and the flying dragons and shit. The, the environment was a character. So when we look at the Oasis, what we're really talking about is this is Anorak's stomping ground. This is his playground, his command. It's, it's his, you're, you're in the realm that is the origination of his imagination. And the entire story, as far as this alternate reality, is really Anorak's reality. This is his character that you're playing within. And it, he is sort of a ghost in the shell as it were, that permeates through the story a little bit at first. But for the most part, every, the entire world that you're within is sitting on top of a code base that that is within that realm, Anorak. And, and that is the character that I enjoy the most in this story. Well, you took mine. Mine was going to be Halliday. I, I, I think Halliday more than Anorak. Okay. Because... I mean, his signature is all over this story. He set this 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 entire contest up for a very specific purpose, and it goes back to Willy Wonka. He was thinking of the type of person that he wanted to win. You know what I mean? And it, it's 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 bizarre, but it's a trip through this man's imagination. Like you are literally living in somebody somebody's imagination. And you know, I mean, it's very fitting that that's that's you know sort of, you know, what how they framed the, uh, excuse me, how they framed the uh, trailer with the music that they used and everything. Mm-hmm. You know, the world of pure imagination. I mean, that's what Oasis is, and it's not necessarily like, you know, whatever you can imagine, you can do. That's true. I mean, fuck, if you go on Reddit today, whatever you can imagine, I guarantee you there's a fucking subreddit for it. 
You know, I mean, so so the idea that, you know, if you open source it, that shit will fill up really quickly is completely plausible and and, and, and definitely would happen. But I, I think that, you know, where when you swing into the parts that were specifically designed by Halliday, you can tell there's just a richness to it and there's a sincerity to it. And that's why I think, too, that, you know, Ernest Klein kind of comes into the conversation. As, as 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 sort of a character in the story up to this point. You know what I mean? Because if you're if if you're into level one, you've already decided, I think, if you love or hate this book. And by the time you get there, you know, you've you you had to have thought to yourself, if you if you didn't know, if you weren't us, you didn't know who wrote this book, you just picked up Ready Player One because you'd heard about it. If you love this book, you have flipped back to the front page and said, who the fuck wrote this? <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, there's that moment of pause. I mean, I, I think I was maybe five chapters into this book before I, like, set it down, pulled up my computer, and read everything that I could about Ernest Klein. You know what I mean? Because... And then you realize there's a competition, and that you're five years too late. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're right. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Fuck, but, but I could have no, gotten that. But <laughs> I'd have lost that shit. shit. <laughs> yeah. Angie, Angie, we'll, we'll, we'll maybe bring this up with her when we record eighteen because she's supposed to come back. But uh, she was—I I, want to say that she she was like she was really fighting for it and had made her way through a couple of the che- uh, the checkpoints. Really? Yeah, that's fucking cool. I don't want to speak for her. Okay. And she's probably, when she hears this, she's probably immediately going to get a hold of me on Twitter and call me an asshole for just misrepresenting what she told me. But um, that's how I remember it a little bit. But uh, I won't go into detail on that. That's her story to tell. But still, it's just, he is very much, you know, a character in this story. Because I think there are overtones of him being Halliday. It's really bizarre because, like, at times, you know, it's, it's like Halliday writing Wade's character. You know what I mean? That's that's sort of that's sort of the uh, the relationship that I get out of it. Like you know, it's it's Halliday is the grown up Wade writing Wade into existence almost, sure. and it's, it's deep. It's really it's it, that's that's Ernest Klein's relationship with the character, and and to me, I think that's why even though Halliday is only brought up a couple of times you get this sort of like you get this sort of love that exists between the two of them. I mean, it's in a lot of ways, it's like, I'm, I did this for you. You know what I mean? Like he, he was, he was right. And I think to, to Halliday, it was probably arbitrary. Like I'm writing this to the one person that I could pro- that I could possibly relate to. Right. Help me, Obi-Wan. You're my only hope. Somebody, somebody has got to figure that, you know, has got to be on that wavelength. And I mean, at almost every touch point, and I think I don't want to get into this too much because it, it bleeds into um, level two and some really interesting conversation about how he wrote Artemis. But there's there's just sort of like Wade's almost got this superpower throughout the first part of the book that he just sees through almost like the Matrix code of the Oasis yeah, because he understands it on Halliday's level. He's the only one that seems to approach it from like you have to be the man, you know. Well, what I and mean? there, are, there are a lot of places in the book where where he very specifically says that 
he gets into a rhythm. He can see the pattern, see the pattern in the game within the game. Yeah. That, that seems to traverse in a meta sort of way through his experience in the Oasis. But isn't it interesting? Cause like he talks about the hunt for the egg, right? Mm-hmm. But, but his love is not necessarily for the hunt. And it's not, it's not really to preserve the, you know, the Oasis as it is. He's not like a freedom fighter, you know, as it, it, it's like He's a lot a of rebel. these, yeah, these Gunter clans are framing him to be. He is literally looking out for the legacy of Halliday. Because you, at more points than he talks about, you know, Gunter culture and all this shit. I mean, like he talks about it as it's something that operates on the periphery of what he's doing. Because right. to him... It's not about that. Like he's he's graduated to this level of understanding with Halliday that, you know, it's almost fatherly. Like he 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 feels a responsibility to the guy who built this because they relate on that level. I I, I don't know. It's really interesting, you know, the the way his character kind of develops beyond this uh level one. Right. Um, because you know, I mean I, I think you you know there there are periods. This isn't really a spoiler, but like you see him sort of rebelling against that to a certain degree, and then coming into it, you know, it's just like it's this very interesting character development uh, for Wade that operates on the periphery of the story. I think that's something something to look at. Super insightful because when you really reflect back, he knows more about Halliday than he knows about his father or his mother. <laughs> or even the relatives he lives with. I mean, deep, deep. Now, granted, he admits that what he knows is through what the media provides, uh, Anorak's Almanac, the, the handful of resource material, and what other people have uncovered, and, of course, what's also in the Oasis. But that's a lot. I mean, that's mm-hmm. that's crazy deep. And it was intentional, too. So I could totally see there being this sort of relationship between him and Halliday that has this sort of mentor or uh, Jedi master slash father figure where he's just researching everything he can. And as a result, he just gains this sort of respect. And there's, there's an interesting thing that happens toward the end of the book that I want to go into until I want to revisit this part of our conversation. When we get there, Mm. we'll talk about it offline because I'm, I'm excited about it, but, (laughs) (laughs) but but yeah, it's 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 an interesting character development for Wade throughout the book. And it, it, like I said, if if you read it through the first time, you know, I mean, and you you read it for the fun of it, it which is the way that I would recommend anybody read this book. Um, you know, it's it's a great adventure. It's a decent character that you can get frustrated with a lot of the time. But on the periphery, there is some depth to the character and to the story, and and you know what he clings to and how he views this situation, how, you know, I mean, the separation from, you know, of Wade from reality through the Oasis doesn't just happen on a, you know, on a visual level or, or a sensory level. It's something like, you know, there, there's some emotion behind it too. Um, but anyways, we'll, we'll, I, before I peel back the onion layers, did you guys have anything else you wanted to add to this? I mean, about the uh, level uh, one. level in one. general. I I was thinking about level one in the context of the entire book, and I keep trying to f- 
determine whether or not it's my favorite of the three levels or not. And I would say that I probably go back and forth between level one and level three. Okay. But I would also say that as I'm listening to level one, I'm like, oh yeah, level one's the shit. Love level one. Love the world building. I I love learning all these new characters over again. Uh, I don't think I've ever felt that level two was my favorite of three. But there are definitely parts of level three that are like, I just, like, I'm just, yeah, totally sucked in. Oh, yeah. Uh, I'll agree. I would like level one for me is, is I think my favorite. And the reason why is because it is, it is for me, the origin story. It's, it's him moving from being a kid and using his knowledge to, to sort of being the master. And it's, it's discovering new characters. It's, it's, it is truly the crest of the wave. It is the cutting edge of the story. That, that shit is happening, and he has to grow very fast, and he's discovering who his enemies are and who his friends are, and it just that defining the situation, it's a bit like, for me, mm-hmm. like a zombie movie. Anything beyond the first wave of Harry Carey in a zombie movie is boring to me. Like, this constant, like, trudge of, oh, there's zombies at the gate, but the real problem is inside the house, and we're inside the mall, and has been for the past six years. No. Give me why the zombies happened, people dealing with it, it, a whole new situation, and them having to coagulate something that represents society in the midst of this immediate and sudden turmoil, to me, I find fascinating and exciting. Anything beyond that, you've really got to come original in order to keep my attention. How how, how about this? What What would you say to somebody who had just finished level one and was unsure if they were going to keep reading. What would I say to them? Yeah, like, h- how would you give them hope that there's so much more great shit coming? How would you reinforce a new hope in the rest of the story? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Blow up the Death Star. Because, uh, like, you know, I, I, every so often on Reddit you see somebody say, oh, I'm like seven or eight chapters in, and it's like, when does this get good? It's like... Definitely not chapter 17. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's the perfect place to cap it. That's been our recap of level one, folks. Thank you very much for joining us this week. We'll see you in chapter 18. Until then, my name is Ryan. This is Chris. And I'm Aaron. And that's the show. Until next time, so long. <laughs> I don't know why I'm struggling on closing out episodes now. Uh, Somebody fucking help me out. What do you say? Anybody? <laughs> well, that's it for the recap of level one. <laughs>